for our weekly scripture reading, and this week we are in chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you would, follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord, and it reads as follows, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin." So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, we love you. We are delighted to be able to gather together and to sing. Grateful to have the children and the service today. Jesus, we know you love the little ones. You have, in, our, in the Word, it's been recorded for us that you said, suffer not the little ones from coming to you. Jesus, you love the children, and so we're just glad to be able to have them worship with us today. And so I ask that you would bless this time, bless the service, bless our reading of John chapter 17, and bless my explanation of it. Help me, Lord God, by your grace and by your Spirit. We pray above all that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, for you are worthy, Lord, worthy of everything that we could possibly give you and so much more. And so, uh, Lord, have our hearts, have our minds, have uh, everything today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, well, now we know in the last few chapters that we've considered in the Gospel of John, this is Jesus' farewell message to His disciples. The first 12 chapters deal with Jesus, His public ministry, healing, preaching, teaching, and then ultimately His public rejection in chapter 12. And so in these last few chapters here, before Jesus goes to the cross, these last moments Jesus has, for this is the night before He was to be crucified, He spends these very intimate moments with the disciples, teaching them, encouraging them, warning them, but basically giving Him what He wants them to know and receive before He goes away. And so that's what we've been considering. And they have left the upper room. They're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's possible that this prayer takes place as they are walking along the way. Uh, It's possible that they've arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus prays. But we know this is not the prayer. This is not the, the, the prayer in Gethsemane. Jesus actually removes himself from the disciples. He leaves uh, one part of the group, takes the three of the inner circle a little further in, then he goes even in a little further beyond them to pray to the Father, where he says, Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, that's not what this is. And so it appears he's praying with the disciples right here and right now. And this is amazing. Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. He prayed often. And there was something that was so striking about the way that he prayed that the only, thing, the only time that it's recorded in the Gospels that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something, it was to teach them how to pray. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. That's amazing if you think about it. They were around him. They saw him pray. They wanted to pray like Jesus. And so, indeed, he was a man of prayer. And after having warned them and encouraged them of all that was to come, what does he do? He prays. He prays for himself. He prays for the 11 disciples that are with him, for Judas has already gone out. And then he even prays for us. And that's what we will see in this chapter. The chapter is really broken down just like that. This is a three-part chapter, if you will. And those are the three different uh, breakdowns in Jesus' prayer. And what we see here, this is what I would call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Some people call this the Lord's Prayer, um, and, and that is more fitting here than over in Matthew. You know, the, um, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, people usually refer to that as the Lord's Prayer, right? That's really the disciples' prayer. Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. Here, this is the Lord's Prayer. And it's a high priestly prayer. Now, what what do I even mean by that? Well, Jesus, we're told, is our high priest. The thing about a priest is, it's good to consider this alongside a prophet. You have a prophet and a priest. What did the prophet do? The prophet went to the people on God's behalf. He would go, he would receive a word, a message from God, and go to the people and declare, thus says the Lord. The priest does the exact opposite. The priest goes to God on behalf of the people. The priest goes and stands before God and petitions God's mercy on behalf of his people and offers sacrifices to them, etc. So Jesus is our high priest. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. He goes to the Father on our behalf, and he even prays for us. Is that amazing? And we're told that even today in this moment, He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. 
Right now, Jesus prays for you. And so that's the title of this message. Jesus prays for you. That's an amazing thing to consider and something that we need to remind ourselves of regularly. Our Lord, our Savior, our great high priest is at the right hand of the Father praying for us right now. Isn't that incredible? And so that's what we see in this chapter. We see this. We see the Jesus praying. And this is a sacred, sacred text of Scripture. We are in the holy place here. We are in the holy of holies. And this chapter has been so revered by so many. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer who founded the Presbyterian church, loved this chapter so much that when he was on his deathbed, he had his wife read it to him over and over and over, this chapter. That's amazing. And so I'm excited to share this. I'm excited to read it, and I'm excited for us to work through this together. I'm excited to glorify Jesus, and I'm excited to see how He will bless us and help us through this study. And I would like to say that this is a great example for us. We see how Jesus prays. We need to pray like that. We see the kinds of things that are important to Jesus. Those kinds of things need to be important to us in our prayer life. So I would submit to you this is a highly practical text. Very practical. So with that, enough said. Let's go ahead and get into it. The first point, and this really covers the first five verses, Jesus prays for Himself. And this is a prayer for glorification. A prayer for glorification. And so it says in verses 1 and 2, When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven. And He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Since You have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so notice that Jesus, when he prays, he lifts his eyes to the heavens and he cries aloud. He speaks forth this prayer to God. It's interesting that when we pray, we close our eyes and bow our head. There are different postures that we see in the Bible for how people pray And the one that we've adopted is the one that is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. And so it's good to mix it up. You know, I think depending on where we're at and how we're doing, sometimes it's good to just lay right on the floor, and that's in the Bible. And so I guess uh, there's a season for everything, but Jesus lifts His eyes. And the idea there, it's recognizing that God is above all. He's in heaven above. Here am I on earth. I think in Ecclesiastes it says, therefore I will let my words be few, recognizing that He is the all-knowing God, the all-wise God, and so we humble ourselves before Him. And so Jesus, He lifts His eyes to heaven, and He says, the hour has come. Now this is amazing. This is another one of those threads throughout the Gospel of John. Six times Jesus refers to His hour, and up to this point He says it has not come. The hour refers to the very reason that He came, and that was to die, to give His life as a ransom for many, to be a sacrifice, to be the Lamb of God that would lay down His life for the sins of the world. And He recognized that His time had come. Imagine living your life like that, knowing when you're going to die, how it's going to go, and for, you know, 33 years, 
33 years living in the shadow of this. That is incredible. And Jesus says, the time has come. My hour is here. And so he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So this idea of glorify your son, Jesus will most definitely be glorified. But first comes shame. First comes suffering. First comes scorn and mockery and betrayal and abandonment. All of that for us. And then will come glory. Glory unspeakable. So when Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son, he's, it's, it's all-encompassing. He's essentially saying, keep me, give me the strength, and carry me all the way through to glory. Carry me all the way through to glory. But why? So that the Son may glorify you. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to give glory to the Father. Now, He came for many reasons. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy sin. He came to give us eternal life. All of that is so well and good. But He came to honor the Father. He came in obedience to the wishes of His heavenly Father that He would come and that He would lay His life down for us so that we could be children of God, set free from God's wrath and judgment, brought into the family, as it were. And so Jesus says in verse 2, you have given the Son authority over all flesh. This word authority, it's uh, in the Greek, it's ek ousia, which means out from within. And so the idea here is that he has everything in himself. He has authority within himself and he doesn't need it. God has authority. God is self-sufficient. He has all things in and of himself and he gives it. And he gives this authority and Jesus says, I have this authority. I have the authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Jesus gives eternal life. He gives life abundantly. Amen? And I want to draw your attention to this phrase because it will come up several times. Give eternal life to all whom you have given me. I just want to point your attention, draw your attention to that phrase. We'll look at that a little bit more here in a moment. Now, Jesus says, having received authority to give eternal life to whomever I will, whomever you give me, look at verse 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not so much the quantity of life, because the reality is we are all going to live forever. Okay, now we're not eternal. We, we haven't existed from eternity past as God has, but we will exist forever. The question is where? Where will we exist? And the Bible is very explicit about this. There is paradise and there is damnation. There is glory or there is judgment. And Jesus came to give life. He came to give eternal life. So it's the quality of life that Jesus gives us. It's glory with the Father. It's eternal joy and bliss. Eternal peace and well-being. Amen? That's the kind of life that Jesus gives and that's what He came to do. And that's why He came to suffer and to rise again from the grave. 
And then he says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Amen? And he says, I give life to whomever I wish, to those whom the Father has given me. And I give eternal life, eternal glory, eternal bliss. That's the kind of life that we have in Jesus. And that isn't a life that just begins on the other side. That's a life that begins right now. Life is hard. It's full of challenges. It's full of discouragement. It's full of all kinds of bad things. But the reality is, in this life, we have Christ. We have His Holy Spirit. We have the joy of God, the peace of God, the blessings of God, the provisions of God. We have all that we need for life and godliness here and now. Eternal life for us has already begun if you have trusted Christ. Amen? Eternal life begins now. Now. Praise God for that. Verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus here is speaking of His pre-existence. Jesus existed before there was time and space. Time's eternal. The Son has existed in perfect harmony, unity, fellowship, and love, joy, and bliss with the Father and the Spirit. And He, according to Philippians 2, emptied Himself. He took the form of a servant. He came to the earth. He lived a simple life of obedience. He died a dreadful death on the cross for us. He rose again in power, and the Father has glorified Him to the highest place. And that's where Jesus longed to return. That's where He came from, and He so longed to go back. And I think there's a good application for us here. You know why Jesus longed for the glory of heaven? Because He had seen it. He had been there. He already knew what the glory of heaven was all about. Us, we don't. We haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. We haven't tasted. And we are very much caught up with what's going on here and now. That's what we're living for. That's what we're living for. We want heaven on earth. We want our blessings here. We're not really in so much of a hurry to go there. We want God to bless us right now. But Jesus said, I have, I have come from glory and that's what I want to go back to. And so I think having this longing in our souls, this longing in our heart for the glory that awaits us, it's a gift from God. Some people seem to have it more than others. And honestly, the reason why we are never satisfied in this life is because we're not intended to be. We are not intended to be satisfied in this life. We were created for something more, something greater, perfect fellowship with the Father, Eternity is in the heart of men and women. And so Jesus rightly longed for the glory of heaven because He had been there and He had already experienced it in fullness. God give us that same yearning. God give us that same longing that we would recognize this world is not our home. We're never going to be truly satisfied here. We're never going to have it all down here. And so God, we long for the day when we will be with You in glory. And we will experience the fullness of eternal life in His presence. Amen? All right, well, with that, we move now to the second part of this chapter. And here, Jesus prays for His apostles. Judas has already left. 
So now there's the 11, the 11, and Jesus is going to pray for them. So the first prayer was a prayer of glorification. I had too much coffee this morning. I got dehydrated. This prayer is a prayer for preservation and sanctification. It's a twofold prayer, and we will see that in these verses as we uh, continue on. So, verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So this idea of manifesting, uh, I manifested your name. The idea is to make known, to make visible, to reveal. To reveal that which perhaps was previously hidden or unknown. It's a really simple word, but when he says, I have manifested your name, he's speaking of God's character, God's nature, the Father's attributes. Jesus has revealed these things to us. And that's what it says in the first chapter of John, that Jesus has explained the Father to us, as it were. Jesus has made known the Father to us more fully as the exact imprint, the perfect explanation, communication of the Father. Amen? Jesus says, I have done that for these whom you have given me. You've given them to me out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. So this here, this is a very deep and profound statement. Jesus is acknowledging that these were given to him by the Father, that they belonged to the Father, and that the Father gave them to the Son. This is what the Bible speaks of regularly, that we were chosen. God chose us in love before the foundation of the world. He chose us and He gave us to His Son as a love gift because the Father desired that the Son be worshipped and glorified for who He is and all that He is. And He is a loving, merciful, kind, and gracious Savior. And the Father desires to glorify the Son just as much as the Son Father, uh, desires to glorify the Father. And the Father determined before there was ever anything, before there was any creation, time, or space, that He was going to give to His Son a bride, a holy and beloved bride, whom the Son would give His life for to redeem and to purchase for Himself as a love gift from the Father. Isn't that amazing? Is that not amazing? You are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Now, I don't know. Maybe that doesn't amaze you. It amazes me. You know, maybe you're sitting there thinking, yeah, I could see that. I could see myself as a gift. You know, yeah, of course. I'm a great love gift. You know, just ask my wife. She'll tell you. But the reality is, is that, you know, before we were created, before we ever did anything, God had purposed. He, we belonged to Him, and He chose to give us to the Son. I've heard it said, I know God chose me before I was created because if He saw me now, He would never choose me. <laughs> now, obviously, that's, uh, you know, that's full of all kinds of theological issues in and of itself, but it's funny. We get it. 
And so that's, we see this over and over. There are those whom the Father has given to the Son. And this, I think, is twofold. One, this can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. It can be even more difficult for us to accept. But God reveals everything to us about Himself because, one, it gives Him glory, and two, it's for our good. And when we recognize that ultimately God chose us, God saved us, it humbles us. And that is the purpose. We are to be humbled by the fact that when there was nothing inherently lovely about me, when there was nothing redeemable, God purposed in His great love and mercy and grace to save me, to redeem me, to give me to His Son as a love gift. And what that also tells us is it's permanent. It's permanent. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. However, having said this, does this mean that we have no part to play? Do we have no part to play in this? We do, actually. We do have a part. We are required to believe. Verse 6 there, he says, they kept your word. You gave me, you gave them to me, they kept your word. Look at verse 7. It says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them your words. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. It's a full acceptance. They saw the Son. They saw the Christ. They heard the amazing words of God that He spoke, and they believed. They received and they trusted, and they surrendered. They submitted their lives to Jesus. Amen? So, chosen before the foundation of the world, yet called to believe and to trust. And that's what it looks like for us, you know? It seems as simple as, I recognized my own neediness, my own sinfulness. I heard the good news of God and the salvation that He offers freely, and I said, yes, I want that. I need that. But then we come to find out later that that God had chosen us first. God drew us. God in His grace gave us a heart that would be inclined to Him. He reoriented our hearts. It's amazing. You must believe. You must hear the gospel. How will they know unless they hear? The gospel must, must be preached. You must believe. You must be born again. So I ask you, have you trusted Christ for salvation? Have you believed the good news? Because I stand here today, and you are here as witnesses that I declare to you the gospel the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And He died for our sin on the cross, and He was raised again from the grave by God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And He took up His own life, the Bible even says. Victorious, victorious. But you must believe. You must confess Christ as Lord. You must repent of your sins and turn to Him. And I ask you this day, have you? Will you? I plead with you. You must. You must. You must have Christ. If you have Christ, you have all. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing. You need Him. You need Him. I know I need Him. I have a great need for a Savior. But the good news is I have a great Savior for my need. 
Spurgeon said that, not me. It's good, though. All right. Well, verse 9, it says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus makes this distinction here. And there is a distinction to be made. God loves the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes would not perish, but have everlasting life. But there's a very special love, a very special love that the Father has for His own, for the redeemed. And Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for them. They were yours, and you gave them to me. Verse 10, He says, all of mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And that is the goal. That is the chief end of the Christian is to give glory to Christ. Verse 11, he says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus says, I'm glorified in them. I'm glorified in them. I think that has been lost on us in a lot of ways in our culture and in this day. We believe that Jesus, God, exists for our glory and our exaltation, that our lives would be improved so that we would have the good life. We live in a very humanistic society. It's all about unlocking potential and purpose and living our best life and finding true happiness, whatever that means to you, it's your own truth that you have to discover, but that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth, and He said that He is glorified by us, and that is our purpose, to love God and to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, amen? And that is true meaning, true worth true purpose, true satisfaction. And Jesus says, keep them in your name, which you have given me. And so now we're dealing with this idea of preservation, preserved, kept, if you will. And that's exactly what Jesus prays, Father, keep them. And this is, again, one facet of Jesus' priestly ministry for us praying that we would be kept. I love that. I take great assurance in that, great confidence in the fact that my Savior is praying for me to persevere, praying for me to be sustained by the Father, praying for me to be preserved to the very end. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And the Father will grant the Son's wish. The Father and the Son are in perfect harmony. Jesus says it. We are one. So Jesus isn't going to say, Father, please preserve those whom you have given me and keep them. And Father's not going to say, I would, but did you see how so-and-so was acting yesterday? I'm done. I'm done. Sorry, son. You're just a little more gracious than I am. But don't worry. You'll toughen up one day. No. The Father will honor the Son's request because they are one. Absolutely one, and so the, the harmony there, the unity, the like-mindedness, the, the, the single-minded goal is that Jesus would come, that He would save, and that He would keep, and that we would make it to glory. Amen? 
That is the prayer of the Son to the Father on behalf of those whom the Father has given the Son. Look at verse 12. It says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus says, look, I kept all that you've given me, except one, one, and that was Judas. And that went down exactly as it was foretold. He's called the Son of Destruction, the one who would betray, the one who would betray the Son of Man into the, the hands of Rome and to the hostile Jews who would seek to have him killed. And that was all part of the plan. It was that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And Jesus says, look, I haven't lost one, one of all that you have given me. I have kept them in your name. I have kept them. And praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. He keeps us. He keeps us in the Father's name. Verse 13, it says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given you, given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So here again we have this theme of joy. Jesus says, I have given them your words, I have spoken these things, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. And notice he says, I speak these things in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. We're to have joy here and now. We are to have joy in this world. The disciples are going to go through some devastating things. They are going to suffer greatly. But Jesus says their joy will be fulfilled because they have your word. I am coming to you, Father. And when he goes, the Holy Spirit comes. They receive the Holy Spirit, the Helper. Their eyes are open to the truth of God's word. And they are absolutely filled with the joy of their salvation. They are filled with joy, just as it ought to be. We should be the most joyful of all people in the world, amen? Those who are in Christ, those who have God's Word. He says, however, that they're going to be hated because that they're not of the world, just as Jesus is not of the world. And we've talked about this at length, the hatred of the world. I've talked about the world system the world system that opposes God is led by its leader, Satan, and it has permeated every aspect of everything around us. You look at Hollywood, you look at sports and entertainment, you look at academia, you look at the universities, you look at the news media, I mean, you look at everything and it is absolutely permeated and corrupted by this value system that is absolutely opposite, opposed to the things of God, as we consider what the world is pushing in every area. And Jesus said that if you have my word and you stand my truth, the world will hate you. And we're seeing it right before our very eyes. The world hates Christ, and they hate the truth of God. They hate it. If you speak against the values of this world, you become an enemy and it's getting more and more ruthless all the time. Verse 15, he says, However, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
So Jesus says, I didn't pray that God take you out. This is an important lesson. We need to hear this. We do need to have our hearts and our eyes fixed on eternity, yes. But there are some people I've met, and it's just that's all they ever talk about. God, just take me home, just take me home, just take me home. Well, look, He hasn't. You're here. You've got a purpose. You're supposed to stand out in the world. We're supposed to not look like the world or be like the world to save the world. We are left in this world to be lights. We're to be different from the world so that we can draw the world because the world really is looking for something that the world cannot offer. Only Christ can give truth and hope. Only Christ has the answer. And so we have to stand we have to stand contrary to the world. We have to stand out from the world. And Jesus leaves us here for that very reason. And He says, and I'm praying that the Father will keep you while you're in the world. I'm praying that the Father will keep you from the evil one who desires to sift us, to destroy us, to, to, to steal, to ravage our testimony, that we would bring reproach on our Savior. But Jesus said, I'm praying for you. He's standing he is standing before God praying for us that we would be kept. Verse 17, it says, Sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus says, and this is the prayer of sanctification, Father, set them apart. That's what the word means. It means to be different. It means to be otherly, otherworldly. There's something that is supposed to be distinct and unique about us. Now, we don't always like that because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to make life hard on ourselves. We don't want to get into a sticky situation. We generally, I think, want to get along and be agreeable with people, but the reality is the truth is the truth, and the truth is offensive. Now, we don't have to be offensive if we simply stand for the truth. That is an offense in and of itself. But Jesus prayed that we would be set apart in the truth. You are different if you believe in Jesus. You are different if you are born again. You are very different if you actually try to live according to the Word of God and its values, morality, purity, holiness. Those things, they are absolutely countercultural. And Jesus says that if we're going to proclaim His name and follow Him, we're going to be different. And that's a good thing. That is a wonderful thing. That's a beautiful thing. That's the way that it is supposed to be. Are we different? Christian, are, we, are you different? Are we different? We need to be. We must be. And I don't mean to be a contrarian. You know, I don't mean to be, well, I don't have enough time to start joking around about that. You get the point. And so Jesus said, I consecrate myself. I give myself. I devote myself. I set myself apart that they may be sanctified in the truth. And this brings us to the third portion of the chapter. Now Jesus prays for all believers. And this is a prayer for unification. A prayer for unification. Look at verse 20. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me 
through their word. That's us. The apostles went out and started preaching and planting churches, and then those disciples started making disciples who made disciples on down through the generations. And here Jesus is praying for all believers everywhere, those who would believe upon the message that went out from the apostles, all of those who would believe through their word. So Jesus is praying for us. And what does he pray? Verse 21, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, Jesus is praying that we would be one. And I think we hear this and think the world, the church globally doesn't look very unified, does it? And I think to some degree that's because we're people, we're people, and uh, it's a complicated matter. We all have various perspectives and opinions, and given enough time, people group with other people, and we splice and dice and slice things different ways, and there's just going to be some of that. Now, I'm not discouraged by that because I think that's amazing to me. God is so glorified in diversity. God has created a very diverse world. And God will forever be glorified in diversity. And I think the fact that we can gather under the banner of Jesus Christ, yet worship Him in so many different styles and cultures and approaches, that to me is a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Jesus, even in the way that He healed people, it was never a one-size-fits-all, you know? He would do it, and, so, and I think that's so that people... You know, we, we do it the way Jesus did it, right? You remember how he spit in this guy's eyes? If he did that every time, we would be like, we're the, we're the church of the holy spitters, <laughs> you know? And uh, I, heard a, you know, I heard a story one time about a missionary who was in this village, and he was uh, talking about this very text, and this just blew about the, the Jesus healing somebody by putting spit in their eyes. Because their witch doctors believed in the power of saliva, and they would put spit on everything for whatever was ailing you. And so when they heard this text, they said, Jesus, this Jesus is the greatest spitter ever. <laughs> and they converted to Christ, you know, and so it's amazing to me, uh, Jesus knows what he's doing. But I just, I say all that to say that sometimes we look at diversity and think that that's a bad thing, but I would submit to you it's a good thing to a degree. But Jesus prayed that we would be one, and we are one. We are one in the Spirit. That's why you can go anywhere in the world and meet a believer, and you know it right away. You have this instant rapport because the same Spirit is in you that is in them. You serve the same Christ. You believe the same Word. You're the child of the same Heavenly Father. You're going to the same glory. Amen? And so truly, we are one. In Christ, we are one with each other. Verse 22 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Amazing. We are one with each other as the Father is one with the Son. And then notice he says, They will know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Let that just punch you right in the face. We are loved by the Father the same way that He loves the Son. 
They are one, we are one in them, and just as the Father loves the Son, we are loved by the Father. Amazing. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus was such a humble man, the servant king, and while he was here on earth, he lived a life of simple obedience, poverty even, and absolute humility. But one day, his glory would be on display, and he couldn't wait for his people to see that. He couldn't wait. He's saying, guys, just wait. Wait till you see the glory that awaits. Just wait. I cannot wait. Father, I desire that they be with me so that they can see the glory, see my glory. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me, and I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Praise God. Praise God. Do you know and believe that Christ has been sent by the Father? I hope you do. I hope you do. And I hope that we all here today have that same love in us. The love of the Father to the Son dwells within our hearts. The love of God having been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That we have this love with one another because we are one in Christ. Because we are a true family in Him. That's Jesus' prayer. That is Jesus' prayer. Prayer for glory. So we exist to glorify Him. And we pray, Father... Help us to live lives that give glory to Jesus. We pray for perseverance, for preservation. Father, help me. Keep me. We pray for each other. Keep my brothers and sisters. Preserve them. Keep us holy. Keep us pure. Sanctify us while we are in this world. And Father, help us to be one. It's a, it's a struggle. In this flesh, it's hard. In the church, unity it's so hard to preserve, but we've got to fight to maintain it. We have to fight against our own pride, against our own opinions, against our own wishes for the greater good, and that is the unity of the body of Christ and the love that God has given us in His Son. Would you agree? Yes or no? Amen? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, that He prays for us even now. Thank you that He is our great high priest, our intercessor. He's worthy. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love You. We give You glory. We give You honor. We give You thanks. Thank You that today, Lord, You have blessed us as we have read Your Word, as we have taken it in. Thank You, Lord, that You minister to us by Your Word. I pray, O oh God, that You would strengthen us now, that we would keep Your Word, that You would keep us this week, that You would go before us, go with us, God, lead us, provide for all of our needs in Christ, fill us afresh with Your Holy Spirit. May we be sanctified, may we be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation May we show forth the glory of Christ in the way that we live. May we demonstrate your love, O oh Father. 
May we be one. May we be united with our brothers and sisters with one mission, to know Christ and make Him known. To know Christ and make Him known. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you. May He keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you. May He lift up your countenance and give you peace. Go forward this week with great joy, knowing that your Savior ever lives to make intercession for you at the right hand of the throne on high. Amen. God bless you all.